welcome to the Cambridge Science Festival. Uh, my name is Chris Hinsley. I'm a cell biologist in the translational biology department of plastics, and it's really great to see so many of you here today to hear about our molecular mix and match approach to designing new medicines. Um, so just to give you a quick outline of uh, what we're going to be doing this morning, uh, we're going to take you through the process that we use at Aspects um, in making new medicines through a series of uh, five short talks, so about ten minutes each. So in total, the presentations are going to last about an hour. And um, as part of that, there are going to be some 3D images. So does everyone have 3D glasses? That's the first thing I need to check. Okay, there are no prizes where my glasses, so that's, that's all good. Um, after, the, uh, after the presentations, we're going to have uh, quite a short sort of question and answer session uh, where all of our speakers uh, will come up and um, you can ask us any questions that you have. Um, but we also want to leave half an hour at the end for a, a, a sort of informal meet the scientists session. Um, so you can also come up to us there, um, have a chat about anything um, that, we've, that we've presented, ask any questions that you have. Um, and in addition, there will be uh, some laptops outside the auditorium where um, you can have a play with the software that we're going to be using this morning. And there are a few um, sort of items that we use in the lab as well. So if anyone wants to take any selfies with those, they would be very welcome. So as it's our first time at the Science Festival, I thought that um, we'd just introduce ourselves both as a company and in terms of the backgrounds of the speakers that you're going to be hearing from today. Um, so Aspects are makers of small molecule medicines, and we specialize in medicines for the treatment of cancer, and neurodegenerative disorders um, such as Parkinson's. So today uh, we're just going to be focusing on uh, the, the cancer medicines. Um, and the, the process that we use, the process that we're going to be describing, fragment-based drug discovery, uh, that was actually something that was pioneered by the company when it was founded 20 years ago. Um, but as, as a method, it's now actually been adopted by many other pharmaceutical companies. We are based across two sites, so all of our research and development is in our Cambridge site, um, and then our site in California uh, runs the more uh, clinical side of things, um, and they're not actually based at the Golden Gate Bridge, but they do benefit from the nice Californian weather. Um, since 2013, we have been part of the Otsuka family. Um, so Otsuka is a Japanese company based in Tokushima, uh, which is on this island in the south of Japan. Um, so we're, we're a company based in Cambridge, but we've got global links both with our American and Japanese colleagues. So in terms of uh, what we're going to be going through today uh, and the people that you're going to hear from, First of all, we're going to hear from uh, Honorine. Uh, Honorine is originally from France. She has an MSc in chemistry and a PhD in medicinal chemistry. So she really comes in at five, she's in the chemistry department at Aspects. 
and she's going to be giving an introduction to some uh, concepts around cancer, uh, essentially what is cancer as a disease. As we progress on our journey, um, Honoring is going to hand over to Amanda. Amanda's British. She has an ensign in biochemistry and a PhD in structural biology. Uh, and she's going to talk about how we start the process of finding new medicines. Amanda will hand over to David. Uh, David is another Brit. He has an MSI in natural sciences and a PhD in chemistry, and he is in the chemistry department. And he's going to be talking through how we take that new medicine and how we develop it further. We're then going to hear from Justina. Uh, Justine is originally from Poland. She has an ensign in biotechnology and a PhD in pathology. Uh, she's in the biology department of aspects, and she's going to talk about how we take that new medicine and test to see uh, whether it actually works. And then finally, we're going to hear from James. Uh, James is from Ireland. He has a BSc in biomedical science and a PhD in biology. Uh, he's also in the biology department. And he's going to be talking through the more uh, clinical aspects of the process and when patients actually see benefit from our new medicine. So without further ado, I would like to hand over to our first speaker, Honorine. Thank you. 
problem for me for that is not the same footing that matching frames in more centers. So we need to identify the matching frame footing in centers. And we also need to match the region with the matching frame footing. So to the first question that we have, have we found the cure for cancer yet? I hope that somebody still that a single cure is not there. Simply because there is not one cancer, there's hundreds of them. So we need more medicine for a scientific work. So how do we describe new medicine assets? I'm not going to give an overview and then everybody is for asking in more detail to explain that. But last step, we try to identify which protein might entrance. And then we try to determine the CD structure of the protein, so what it looks like with that pair. Once we understand how the protein looks like, we try to find new medicine that can block the protein from malfunctioning. And for that, we use the principle of lock and balance. So this is the lock, and this is the key, and here because we have the box at the top. When you stop that catalyst, you will do your front door key, can open the front door, but it's not going to open the back door. And that's a bit the same when it comes to protein and medicine. So that's a different view of your protein. So that's the same protein, but a different way to look at it. And you just look at the surface of your protein with all the bumps and holes that you have. And you just have to find the perfect medicine to just match those bumps and holes. And on that, I'm going to give a rough plan on that, which will explain a bit more into detail how we start finding new medicine. Thanks, Elaine. Um, in order to tell you how we start the process of making new medicines, first I'm going to tell you a bit more about proteins. Because Henri has already introduced proteins and told you how important they are in cancer. But some of you might be thinking, well, what exactly are proteins? Uh, what do proteins do? And what are proteins made of? So proteins are large molecules that are found in all living cells and they're essential for life. And the reason they're so important is they do most of the work inside your cells. So you've got um, thousands of different proteins, and each protein has a different job to do. But here are some of the main types of jobs. So you've got proteins called enzymes that catalyze the biochemical reactions necessary for life. Uh, proteins uh, called receptors um, that can transmit messages uh, between different cells or between the outside of the cell and the inside of the cell. Proteins that provide structure by acting as scaffolds, for example, keratin in your skin and hair. Proteins whose role it is to transfer, transport other molecules um, within your cell or around your body. For example, haemoglobin, which carries oxygen around your body. And proteins that help you, to help you to defend your body against disease, for example, antibodies. And also proteins whose role it is to control the action of other proteins, for example, inhibitors, which can stop certain other proteins from working. So as you can see, different proteins have very different shapes and structures. And this is important to understanding proteins because it's the 3D shape of a protein that determines its function. But despite having very different shapes and functions, all proteins are very similar when you look at their basic makeup. <coughs> so proteins are made of amino, ac amino acid molecules that are joined together in, uh, in a sequence like these on the string um, and are then folded up to give a specific 3D shape. Uh, the bonds holding the amino acids together are very strong, so this repeating unit is called the backbone of the protein. Different amino acids have different side chains that can have various sizes, shapes and properties. So as soon as the amino acid chain is made, these side chains interact with each other and with the backbone to bend and fold the, the uh, chain into a specific 3D structure. So here's an example of a real protein. 
Um, and here I'm only showing the protein backbone so that you can see the overall architecture of the protein. So it starts here in blue, carries on round here, round here, forms this kind of sandwich structure here, round here, here, and finishes up here. Might be a bit easier to see if I turn this round. So as you can see, protein structure is actually fairly complicated. But what does it look like if I now add the side chains as well? So now I'm showing all the individual atoms within the protein as little spheres. Um, and the lines joining the spheres represent the bonds between the atoms. And I've coloured the atoms according to the elements. So carbon is in green, nitrogen is in blue, oxygen in red, and sulphur in yellow. So as you can see, the 3D atomic structure of a protein is really very complicated. But what's remarkable is that the same amino acid sequence will always give rise to the same 3D structure. And it's, it's fair to say that scientists still don't really understand how or why this happens. So maybe some of you are now wondering, well, how do we know this protein looks like this? How do we find out the atomic structure of a protein in the first place? Well, given that pro most proteins are about a millionth of a millimetre in size, they're far too small to see using a normal microscope. So it turns out one of the best ways to see the atoms inside proteins is to use X-rays, which are a form of high-energy light. So just as doctors use X-rays to look inside your body to see if you've broken any bones, so scientists can use X-rays to look inside proteins. And the technique they use to do this is called X-ray crystallography because it uses crystals. So what do I mean by this? Well, take the example of table salt. This is formed when atoms of sodium and chloride stick together in an ordered way to form salt crystals. In a similar way, under certain conditions, identical protein molecules can also stick together in an ordered way to form tiny protein crystals about a tenth of a millimetre in size. If we take one of these protein crystals and fire x-rays at it, the x-rays bounce off the atoms inside the crystal and hit a detector forming the spotty pattern you see here called a diffraction pattern. This is then fed into a computer which can use this to calculate the 3D positions of all the atoms inside the protein crystal. So x-ray crystallography is a very powerful technique that allows us to effectively see the atoms inside a protein. So now that we know the structure of our target protein, how do we start the process of finding a new medicine? Well, just a reminder of what we're trying to do. We want to find a medicine that binds to our malfunctioning protein to stop it from working and therefore stop the cancer cell from dividing. And this is the protein we're going to be using as an example. This protein is involved in some cancers and we know that this site on the protein is important for its function. So what we want to do is to find a medicine that binds to this site and therefore stops this protein from working. So the first stage to finding a new medicine involves looking for what are called HITs. And a HIT is any molecule that binds to the target site and which can therefore be used as a starting point to design a new medicine. So what we do is we search through or we screen a library of different molecules to, to find these starting points or HITs. So just as a reading library contains a collection of books that are stored in organised ways that you can quickly find a specific book, so also a chemical library contains a collection of chemicals which are stored in an organised way uh, with a corresponding electronic database that gives information on all the different chemicals um, and also allows you to search and to manage the library which can contain up to thousands or even millions of different chemicals. There are many different techniques you can use to screen chemical libraries, but at Aztecs one of the most important techniques we use is the one I explained earlier, X-ray crystallography. So let's take two of these uh, molecules and use these in as an example. The first thing we do is we make a solution containing a high concentration of the molecule we want to test. Then we take one of our protein crystals and we put it into the solution and leave it there to soak for several hours. 
And the molecules in the solution are actually small enough to be able to wiggle their way inside the protein crystal. Then we take the crystal out, we fire x-rays at it, and we calculate the structure to see if the molecule has bound. And in this case, there is no molecule bound. So let's go on to the next one. So we make a solution containing our molecule. We take one of our protein crystals and we soak it in the solution. We fire x-rays at it, we calculate the structure. And in this case, yes, there is a molecule bound. So this is called a hit. The, one of the reasons um, X-ray we use X-ray crystallography is that it enables us not only to find hits, but also to it shows us, gives us information on how the molecule binds to the protein. And this is really important when it comes to deciding which hit we want to use as a starting point, but also how we can then grow and improve this hit to turn it into a final medicine. And David will talk about this stage more in his talk next. So what makes a hit? Why was the second molecule a hit, for example, but the first one wasn't? Uh, well, a hit, in order to be a hit, a molecule has to have a shape that is complementary to the protein surface. And this is the principle of lock and key that Honorine introduced earlier. So let's think about this in a bit more detail. So here's our protein again. And now I'm showing you the protein surface. And this is our target site. So let's zoom in on this and turn it into a cartoon. So we could start the process of finding a new medicine by screening um, relatively large molecules like those represented here in the hope of finding one that fits into the whole of our target binding site. And in fact, this is what a lot of pharmaceutical companies do. They screen libraries containing um, large molecules that are already the size of a final medicine molecule in the hope of finding one or a couple that fit into their target site. Um, but because these are relatively big and complicated molecules, the chances of finding any that fit um, are incredibly small. So this means you have to screen a lot of compounds, and we're talking up to millions of different molecules, in order to find any hits. So at Aztecs, we use a different approach. We screen much smaller molecules, which are called fragments. And these are basically small parts of a medicine. Because of their small size, fragments are much more likely to be able to fit into the bumps on the surface of a protein than bigger molecules. And this means that we don't have to screen, whoops. And this means that we don't have to screen as many of them in order to find hits. And this means that we can use uh, a lower throughput technique like X-ray crystallography in order to find these hits. Okay, so now we've found some fragment hits. What happens next? So now I'll hand over to David, who will take you through the next stage of, finding a of making a medicine. Okay, thank you very much, Amanda. So we've just heard about this fantastically powerful technology, X-ray crystallography, and how this gives us an amazing opportunity to see the 3D structure of our protein of interest. We've also heard about fragments, and that's a really interesting technique to get a good starting point for our medicine. However, fragments themselves are generally too small and too weak to be full final medicines themselves. So we need to go through a process of optimization to take that initial starting point and develop into a final medicine. And two of the main properties that we talk about are potency and selectivity. Now, if we think about potency, a good analogy to use is that of rock climbing. So some of you in the audience might have had a go at rock climbing yourselves once upon a time. You can see our person on the left here is uh, hanging on just a single hand and looking a little bit unstable. There's only one contact to the surface. Whereas as we move across to the right, we're getting a far stronger interaction between our climber and the number of contacts they're making to the wall. So 
in this sense, potency can simply be related to the strength of binding, how sticky our medicine is in sticking to the binding site of our protein. When we come to talk about selectivity, we'll come back again to our favourite analogy of the lock and key that we've had a few times already. So again, the, uh, the key on the left clearly is a single tooth here, is looking a little bit simple and would probably fit into many locks. Whereas as we move over to the right, we're becoming far more complex. And again, as we develop from a fragment to a medicine, we want to try and build in that selectivity, which can also be thought of as how specific our compound is for our protein of interest. So again, in summary, to become a medicine, our initial fragments need to make more contact to the surface of the desired protein. Now, there are different ways you can go about doing this, but we've already heard of the brilliant X-ray crystallography, which gives us a lot of structural information and gives us some really good clues as to how we can develop. And probably the most common strategy is simply known as fragment growing. So in this cartoon here, we've got our initial fragment on the left-hand side in pink, uh, binding into part of our binding target site. And through using a computational design and x-ray crystallography, we can learn something about how this fragment fits in, and we can grow into some of the adjacent sides, sites and make more contacts to the protein. And again, as we grow, we should hopefully be gaining more potency and more selectivity. Now, I'm going to show you some of the software that we actually use at Aztec to try and view these things in 3D. So have your glasses at the ready, but not yet. We're not quite there yet, guys. I'm hoping I may need to exit the presentation. Sorry, bear with me one moment. Well-drilled process, nice and smooth. And while we're doing that, I'm going to take the lights down. Okay, I'm just going to take the lights down a little bit because it's a bit easier to see what I'm going to show. So, I'm going to start with actually the protein that we have already been looking at with Honorine and Amanda's presentations. And you can see just from a general uh, surface as I rotate this around, there's lots of little holes and bumps and grooves and pockets. And these are all the interesting little features on the surface of our protein that we want our molecule to interact with. And I'm just going to actually strip off some of the surface and you'll sort of see the atoms underneath. So now I'm going to zoom in a little bit. We saw Amanda showed us that brilliant view with all of the, uh, the atoms. And yeah, sorry, not glasses yet, sorry folks. For those of you who are, who are keenly wearing your glasses, it will be just a moment away, I promise. <coughs> Yeah, it, it, it gets better, trust me. So here we can see the underlying atoms that form our protein surface and form the, the molecule of the protein. And I'm now going to come back to that initial starting point. And now, if you'd like to pop your glasses on, you can hopefully get a little feeling for some of the 3D character of the protein. So this is just a really uh, useful tool. This software was developed at Aztec itself, and we sort of can use this to obviously get a really good feeling for how our protein looks and where we might be able to pick up our new interactions and grow our fragments. So now I'm going to flick to a protein with a fragment bound. So our fragment here is green, and this is obviously really good. We've got this hit from X-ray crystallography, and as a computational chemist, a, a modeler, and also the synthetic chemists themselves, 
we can look at the possible options for how we might grow. So you might be thinking in the audience, well, maybe there's a bit of space up here to the left, you know, there's a little bit of a, a ridge, or uh, maybe there's some space up to the top right section of this uh, protein. And there's definitely quite an interesting little pocket. I'm going to zoom in a little bit more. There's definitely a really attractive looking you know, pocket here for potential interaction. And so then we look to try and grow our fragment. And I'll come back to that original bookmark setting. And now we're going to see the first round of growth. So as we move to a dark blue compound, this is our first attempt at growing our molecule. And we've made a little bit of progress towards the bottom right. Let's go for the next level of growth. Again, this one doesn't look too different, but we've actually bulked up a little bit on our left-hand side. And really, we're kind of exploring the surface and trying out a few different things, some of which won't work, some of which will. So there is an element of trial and error when we design compounds and see which ones work. And finally, our last phase of growth has really given us some interesting access into that bottom right-hand part of the pocket, which I mentioned initially. And this is a really nice example of fragment growing. So what I'll just quickly do actually is flip between the initial fragment in green. So we hold that and as we add our final compound, we can see a definite increase in size, in particular in that bottom right pocket. And as before, we can actually look at the atoms that make this up. So again, this, this, whilst it looks like a big blob, they are made of atoms, they're made of these uh, different interactions with the protein surface. So again, I hope we get a nice little 3D view. And then just to finish off on the viewer, I'm just going to turn off the 3D, sorry, because otherwise it lo looks a bit messy when I take off the surface. And again, this is obviously a very complex view where we're seeing all the atoms of the protein and the atoms of our medicine all interacting. And obviously we've got the flexibility at Aztecs to use different views, different modes, and really sort of adapt how we use the software to meet our needs. Okay, and with that, I'm going to try and head back to the presentation. Uh, just bear with me one moment, please. I'll bring some of the lights back up just in case it helps see a little bit better. I'll just flip through this with a slide I didn't show before, sorry. So just as a quick summary of that growing, this is actually the same uh, set of compounds we've just viewed. And here's our initial fragment. We saw some growth down to the right-hand side in our initial growth stage. The next one, got a little bit more bulk in this top right pocket and on the left. But finally, perhaps the most sort of obviously significant growth into that bottom right-hand pocket. Now the next question might be, well, this is really cool. You've shown some growth. We've gone from a small blob to a big blob. But how do we actually make these? What do we actually do to construct and grow these molecules hands-on in the lab? And this is the, the process of chemical synthesis. So I myself am a chemist, and I, I'm very fortunate, I think, to be able to make brand new compounds that have never been made before. It's a really exciting part of the process. And the idea of chemical synthesis is not a million miles away from one of our favorite toys that we've probably all come across, good old Lego. And just with Lego, we know there are certain things you can't do. So if I try to put two blocks of Lego together bottom to bottom, we know that doesn't work. Similarly, if you try and put things together top to top with Lego, they don't stick together, it's going to fall apart. But when we get it right, and we, we follow the classic rules of Lego, we know that we can build structures and grow our models. 
And the same goes for chemistry. There are certain rules that we have to follow to be able to bring substances together and react them and make new bonds. So this, what I'm about to show you now, is a kind of example of a, a reaction that we might do in the lab ourselves. So you can hopefully see that the left-hand molecule number one is very similar to the left-hand part of our product. And the right-hand uh, starting material number two looks very similar to the right-hand side of our final product. And here this, uh, we've got this procedure we follow, and it kind of sounds a bit boring. So a mixture of some grams of number one, a bit of number two, and blah, blah, blah. We mix it at a certain temperature for a certain amount of time. This probably sounds a little bit similar for something else we might do at home. Sounds like baking. And really, you know, baking is often referred to as, as sort of the chemistry in the kitchen. And there are a lot of similarities in the, in the order and the steps that you have to follow in the lab. Albeit with a few more explosions and fires, hopefully not. So just to summarise our example we've seen, I'm going to show both the, the protein surface structure and also the chemical structure with the bonds shown. We saw our growth on a hit to what we sometimes refer to as a lead compound. So a lead compound is simply a more advanced species from our original fragment on the way to our final medicine. And we can definitely just see clearly we've added on more atoms, we've got new parts of this molecule as we've grown. And this first growth actually saw a 1,000 times improvement in the binding potency. The next one was 10 times stronger, and the final one 100 times stronger. So when you multiply all these together, our final lead is actually 1 million times stronger binding to our protein of interest than our initial fragment. Now this, of course, looks rather sort of straightforward, and I've just gone from one to the other quickly. The truth is, this takes quite a long time and a lot of dead ends as you go along. Lots of things that we might try don't work. And so this might this may only show four molecules. It was easily well over 500, probably near 1,000 molecules that were prepared on the way of this path. And with that, we've now got a nice lead compound. And the next thing we need to do is think about testing it in a biological system. So I'm going to hand over to Justina, who's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Thank you. 
it's easy to stop the cancer cells to migrate to the liver of the dish and change the test. And finally, the third example of how we can affect the cancer cells is we can make them stop eating. The cancer cells, because they're growing so fast, they rely on a constant supply of nutrients and oxygens, which is delivered through the newly formated blood vessels. So we can design a new medicine which is able to stop that process and shrink and make less branches of the endothelia cells, which are the blood vessels. These are examples how we can design medicines and how we can test them in laboratory. And now I can show you examples of the actual experimental data, how we can test a new medicine if it's affecting the cell growth. So let's imagine we are now in the laboratory and we are looking under microscope um, on the plastic disc where the cancer cells are growing. The cancer cells are those tiny dots you can see over there. And <coughs> into one of these dishes, we will add our new potential medicine, which is the red one. So normally this experiment will take three to five days, but for the purposes of this presentation, we'll make it easier and I can watch it in the fast forward. So we will add the medicine to one of the dishes and we'll see what's happening. So we see that the cells are growing, they are dividing, and they're slowly overtaking the whole dish. And I don't know how about you, but I think I don't really see any striking effects in, any, in the uh, seated cells. So if, as a scientist, if I wanted to explain a different way what, what we have just seen. So we saw the cancer cells, which were seated with this new potential medicine. And I think the easy solution to tell they happily grew and overtake the plastic dish. And you might wonder why. And I think David already mentioned that the whole process is not straightforward. And because of negative results, it will be quite common to see in the special in the earlier stages of the discovery of the new medicine. So it's as you've seen, there will be um, bioscientists taking part in the whole process. So we have a structural biologist who will be responsible for the designing of this new medicine, growing the fragments into a proper medicine. Then we'll have a chemist who will follow the complicated chemical systems to create and make um, the new medicine. And then we'll have a bio other scientists, including biologists, who will then test this new medicine in their biological system. And we all seek the things we learn from this experiment to improve the process and make better optimized medicines. So let's imagine that our previous medicine, which didn't really work very well through this experiment, now we want to do more scientific optimization. We might have, for example, improved the potency of the drug to make it stronger so it can cure the cancer cells better. So this is our optimized medicine, now it has the healing power, and we're adding it to the plastic dish with cancer cells, and let's see what happens. We see the cancer cells, which were not treated, they're growing, they're overtaking the whole dish. And I think on the right-hand side, you can see a very different picture this time. I think the results are quite striking. But if you wanted to explain it in a different way, again, we have the cancer cells, which are treated with the optimized drug. And this time, I think they really like it. They completely stop growing, and most of them actually die. And that's fantastic results. We would be very happy seeing the medicine, which is so potent, it can kill the cancer cells so well. But that's not the end. Now we have the fantastic new medicine, which can kill one type of a cancer. But as already mentioned, it doesn't mean that we can cure all types of cancer. So as you remember, different, different organs, different tissues, different patients 
will have a different process with more harmful and less harmful cells. And now it's important to match the correct medicine to that correct malfunctioning protein. So it means that scientists will need to design and make different types of medicines to treat different cancer types. But what's more important now is also to think about the patient. Well, we need to identify which patient has which malfunctioning protein so that we know that we match the right medicine to the right patient. And that's what we call patient selection. And now I'll hand over to Jim, Jay, who can tell you a little bit more about how we select the patient and how long the process takes. Thank you. 
through here, we finally get a market in everything. So at that stage, it's really exciting because at that stage, it's something that can be supplied to people through doctors and through the pharmacy. But our work at that stage doesn't stop because at that stage, you could be giving your medicine potentially to millions of people. So we continue to monitor to make sure that it's still efficacious and that it's still safe. And there's a lot of regulation that goes into all of this. And in terms of timelines, I think it's actually really important to, to look how long all of this takes. So the preclinical research stage, the part that's taking place in the laboratory, on average for a new cancer drug, that takes about five years. For the clinical trials, on average, takes eight and a half years. It's worth noting there's a big variance here in terms of how long these trials take, but this is the average length of time for a new oncology drug. And I actually think it's really exciting when you know you see a new breakthrough in the news coming out in terms of there's been a breakthrough in cancer to, to have a look to see exactly what stage this has occurred at. Because if it's something that's coming out of a laboratory or out of a, a university, let's say, for example, we get an idea that, okay, maybe it's going to be about 10 years before this could be translated all the way through into a medicine that would be available. But if we see something that's at stage three clinical trials, positive results, that's super exciting because that means that that medicine is going to be available to people in the very near future. So in terms of the medicines that Aztec has been involved in making, as you can see, we're actually heavily partnered with um, different pharmaceutical companies and also different universities. We try to work with people as much as we can. We also have some medicines that come through entirely on our own. So we have medicines that are spread throughout uh, from marketed medicines that we've been involved with to ones that are earlier stages of clinical trials. You can also see we've got medicines spread right across the cancer field, from everything from leukemia to bladder cancer to, um, to lymphomas. So it's actually a really exciting time to be in Aztec and have all of these new medicines come through. So I hope you enjoyed the journey that we took you on today in terms of how we make the new medicine. So starting off from how we get the structure of the malfunction program we're interested in, how we then use chemistry to design to design medicines against it, and then test them in the laboratory before finally going into a, a clinical trial to see if they work in the patient. But again, it's important to iterate. We've kind of made it look like a nice, straightforward, linear process. In reality, it's, it's not. There's a lot of kind of head scratching and trying to figure out why did something go wrong and how can we improve it. So we go design, make, test, figure out how we can improve it, design, make, test, how can we improve it, until eventually, hopefully, we get to the point where we have a medicine that can go all the way through and be given to patients. Um, and ultimately, that's what a company like Aztec is, is our goal, it's all about. Um, so Chris is going to take over chair now. If you have any difficult questions, please uh, direct them towards Chris. <laughs> and thank you for your time. <laughs> Uh, no, this is a purified uh, Thank you. This is a, 
purified protein sample. So we tried to make the um, the liquid homogeneous protein quickly just have that protein right. in Right. Does it have lots of molecules? Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So the X-ray is showing that it surely is uh, affecting it. Surely they're all going to bounce off in different ways depending on which protein they 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 fit. So therefore, is it not going to be a complete picture of random effect? No, obviously not. So why? <laughs> spent some time telling us about attachment, the attaching to proteins. And uh, is there a kind of very simplified explanation of how that's actually stopped the, the thing that introduces the virus once you've got attachment? So I think that's more of a biology question. Tend to sort of 
move with the times, although it may be a little bit slower than you see in uh, universities and academia where those, the cutting edge research is happening on a sort of week-by-week -week basis. Uh, it can take a little bit longer to catch on in, in the industry and pharmaceutical companies, but definitely from a chemistry perspective. The day-to-day -day is still the classic sort of synthetic chemistry that's been done for over 100 years, but there's definitely more technology that's coming in that allows us to screen thousands, if not millions, of sets of conditions in a very short space of time, so really shorten the time to optimize uh, our reactions and how we grow our fragments. Whoever one of the biologists has any comments about automation and technology, I'll leave them in the lurch. <laughs> so I, I think from, from my perspective as a biologist, um, the, the, the sort of foundations of, of what I learned from Angus in my sort of undergraduate studies, they're, they're still the same. But I to add to what David said, so the, the technology advances, Jocelyn, your, your ways of assessing things as, as Justina talked about, your ways of assessing um, cell division, your ways of assessing where the cells move, um, they change. Um, but actually the process that you're studying stays the same. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to add.
we can um, So you know how uh, when you have a broken team, when you find a malfunctioned one, uh, when you find the bit before it, you know how you find the hit. Uh, is it possible to put um uh, like say you find two at uh, like two atoms? Is it possible or molecules? Is it possible to put both of them inside one medicine so they could be uh, so more uh, so more of them could be, so you can have less medicines but and, more, and they're more effective. So you just multi them, so I think this is one thing to answer. Great question, yeah, very good. Um, I think at the fragment level, when we're first doing that initial screening of our library, we do sometimes see lots of different fragments binding in different parts of the binding pocket, so they might be very close to each other, or they might be quite far apart. Now, when we go through the optimization, Sometimes we'll just have one fragment that we throw, which is the example we saw today. Sometimes you might have two fragments that are quite close and you can link them together. So you can make the bonds and sort of join the dots, as it were, put them together. But we always want to end up with just one single molecule rather than having a drug which is a mixture of, of two molecules for the same site. Because I think there's a lot of complexity in how different molecules interact with the same protein and with each other. So it's generally much more controlled and safer and more reliable to have a single molecule at the end that binds to our protein. But definitely in the early stages, we might look to have multiple bits that we join together and link. So it's a great question. Okay, so um, thank you very much, everyone, for, uh, for coming along today and for listening to us uh, uh, describe the process that we go through excavating medicines. Um, as I mentioned at the start, uh, there is actually half an hour now if you have any further questions or if you want to come and chat with us. Um, there are also a couple of laptops outside uh, where we've got the, um, the, the viewer, the, uh, the program that you saw David using. Um, so if you want to have a play with that, uh, put some structures around, um, then that would be great. Uh, we have some uh, some goodies to give away as well, so some uh, some bags and some lights, uh, and we also have some of the equipment that we use uh, in the lab. So um, please do feel free to, uh, to come up and talk to us um, and have a go with any of those. Um, and I should also mention, if you could please hand your 3D glasses back um, to the people at the exit, then that would be much appreciated. Thank you very much.